And if you have a copy of God's Word, bring it out and uh, let's open up to Genesis chapter 4 tonight. Genesis chapter 4, as we move through our study of Genesis. It's wonderful to have Miss Bim and Mr. Ed back from their trip. I know Brandon's very thankful to have you back on the keys there, worshiping with him. Tonight we're going to study a very um, well-known passage, Cain and Abel. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. And as I read and studied this passage, it's very interesting because it's about the, the beginning of man, you know, after Adam and Eve started having children. And then it traces the paths of, of two people and their heritage after them. And as I studied the text, and, and of course Abel's life was ended prematurely by his brother Cain, but then eventually Adam and Eve had Seth. And uh, then Genesis <clears throat> briefly talks about Cain's family line, and then after that, the rest of Genesis talks about Seth's family line. And so as I studied these two men and their heritage, I started to think about heritage. And the question that sort of came up in my mind that I wanted to lay out there for you all to think about, and some of you probably think about this now, is what will my family line be described as? You know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if Jesus tarries 200 years from now, what will your family line be known for? Do you ever think about that? What will your people be known for? Someone writing a book about you and who came after you and who came after them and after them, what will that be about? Because that's really at the heart of Genesis the toldot. The toldot is the Hebrew word for generation or people of, like, so-and-so begat him, so-and-so begat her, you know, that process. It's through Genesis, right? And that's really the, the word that describes Genesis. Now, wrapped up inside that, of course, is man's walk with God. Um, God interacting with man, giving uh, of himself, revealing himself so we could walk with him as his creation. But it's interesting when I think of family lines, I've, I've been reading some missionary biographies. I've been reading, I just finished one on Adoniram Judson, who is an awesome, a wonderful uh, missionary to the Burmese people, and some that came before him. And what's interesting about the, the missionaries from the 19th century is you see that oftentimes a missionary um, would be the product of missionary parents. And sometimes they're even born overseas and they don't come back. They just stay there because those are their people. Um, but it's interesting to read about them and to read about how they, the, their parents kind of established this legacy and this expectation that their kids would live on mission. And so they're known for being missionaries. And so as we look at this text, I just want you to kind of plant that in the back of your mind because we're going to swing back to it at the end as a conclusion. So look at the text. We're going to talk about the first children of Adam and Eve. So Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So now, at this point in the book of Genesis, we transition to Adam and Eve's life outside the garden. This is after the fall, after they ate the forbidden fruit. Now they're living outside the garden they're enduring the consequences of their sin. Uh, this is a life that's going to be much more difficult because of their sin. 
it's going to be, according to chapter 3 of Genesis, harder to grow food, death will reign, childbirth will be much more dangerous and painful for Eve. But God continues to care for them. He provides an opportunity for them to live, to work, and to walk with Him outside of the Garden of Eden. From here on, we divide the rest of the book of Genesis into sections uh, called the toldot in Hebrew. It just means the generation of. Um, and it, if you were to read uh, Genesis straight through, you'd catch, it would stop and say, oh, this is, you know, this is Adam, and these are all the sons of Adam. And then it would go forward, and, and then it does Seth, and then there's, of course, Noah, Abram, Abraham. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You guys with me? Good, okay. I just felt like maybe we were disconnected. <laughs> Adam and Eve conceive, and Eve gives birth to a baby boy named Cain. The birth of Cain is confirmation for Adam and Eve that God has not forsaken them outside of the garden. He's a sign of life. A sign that God's going to honor uh, His um, command for them to populate the earth, to manage creation. And Cain's birth reminds Adam and Eve that life will go on and that the Lord will continue to bless them even though their perfect relationship with Him has been broken by sin. Eve recognizes that Cain is a blessing from God in verse 1 when she says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So she knows that having a child is possible through God. Cain's name sounds very similar to a Hebrew word meaning to bring forth. And do you remember what what Eve's God-given mandate was? That from her, people would come. And Adam recognized that. That's how she got her name, Eve. And so her God-given role was to bring forth children. And, and I think that the Hebrew word uh, Cain and the Hebrew word for to bring forth are uh, very similar in meaning. And so I think that's why he was called Cain. It reminded her and Adam that my role is to bring forth children and Cain is the first of that fruit of blessing from God. So Adam and Eve conceive again, and Eve give, gives birth to another boy. This one they name Abel. Uh, his name means breath, and um, it's interesting that his name, he was named Abel, and his name means breath, and of course his life was ended prematurely by his brother Cain, almost as if he existed for a breath. Eve's response to Cain and Abel's births remind us about something that's very, very important. Children are created by God, and they are a blessing to us. Psalm 127, 3-5 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with the enemies in the gate. And of course, Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. And we see God is very much a part of the birth of children, the creation and the birth of children. And this biblical truth impacts us in several ways. I want to mention two tonight. First, it shows us that abortion is a heinous act of murder Because life begins at conception. God creates life. God is the only one with the authority to take away life. Children not only bless the individual family, right? Kids are a blessing to our family. But they're also a blessing to the family of God. I want to tell you, I've been in churches uh, that hadn't used their nursery in a decade uh, that never, that in the past years hadn't seen a child come and be a part of their ministries, you know, for over 10 years. And those are pretty sad places. Have y'all ever been in a church like that? It's sad. They pray for children, just for one, to come and bring life and excitement. Kids remind us of the newness of life and God's blessing upon our lives. And so we have a calling from God 
as his church and as the church that houses children to disciple them, to love them, to train them, and to welcome them into our ministry. And I think, I think that our church does a pretty good job of that. All right, let's move on to verse 3. Cain and Abel worship God. <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to see in the first part of that, verses 3 through 5, is that Cain and Abel are going to bring an offering to the Lord. Verse 3 says this, So it came about in the course of time when, uh, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain and Abel each bring an offering to the Lord. The text doesn't say whether this is the first time they did it, why they did it. I think probably they learned it from Adam, and we're bringing that as an object of worship to him. We don't have any record of God's commanding them to do this, but they did it nonetheless. Both men bring an offering from his respective vocation. Cain brought an offering from his crop. He was a farmer. And Abel brought an offering from his flock. Cain and Abel's offerings differ in one primary way. Look back at the text. In verse 3, it says, Cain brought an offering from his crop. Seems okay. Verse 4 says, Abel brought the firstborn from his flock and offered their fatty portions. Now, the fatty portions of the animal would have been the best part of the animal. Meaning, he brought his very best... First of all, he brought the firstborn, and then of them, he brought the best of them, and then he offered all of them to God, even the fatty portions, the best parts. So what's going on here is Cain essentially gave God from his leftovers, and Abel gave God the first and very best of his flock. Why did the Lord approve of Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering? That's a good question to ask. Now, this question ignites considerable debate among scholars. There's two kind of primary views about this. One primary view, some folks believe that God accepted Abel's offering because it was a blood offering. And while Cain's offering was a, a grain offering, and, and therefore only the blood offering was acceptable, so they believe that Cain should have gotten some of Abel's flock and then offered that as a blood sacrifice. That doesn't seem quite right, however, because God accepted both blood and grain offerings throughout the Old Testament from the Israelites. So I don't think that's the reason why God rejected Cain's offering. God's acceptance of Abel's offering and his rejection of Cain's offering seems to have influenced by the integrity of the giver, the attitude of their hearts. This is informed by Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Let me say it again. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel's offering was accepted because he offered it by faith. Matthews writes, Both the giver and the gift were under the scrutiny of God. Cain's offering did not measure up because he retained the best of his produce for himself. As Luther noted, the faith of the individual was the weight which added value to Abel's offering. You see, God looks at the heart and responds to that truth. Does God need our offerings? No. Did God need some of Abel's flock and some of Cain's crop? Did God need to eat that? Did that give God strength to have that offered and, and for that to rise up in his presence? No. God owns everything. God creates things by speaking it into existence. So it wasn't about what they offered. It was about how they offered it. Because our God looks into the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's no fooling God. Right? 
We can put on a nice face. We can fool other people. But at the end of the day, God sees the heart. He sees our attitude. Hosea 6.6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And of course, 2 Corinthians 9.7, Paul writes, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. All right, so the next step, Cain is going to respond to God and his rejection of his offering. And what he's going to do is he's going to reveal on the outside what was really on the inside, what was in his heart. Verse 5 continues, it says, So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The Hebrew phrase used to describe Cain's response to God's rejection of his offering demonstrate the attitude of his heart. Verse 5 says that Cain was, look at the text, very angry. The question is, with whom was he very angry? God, right? Because God rejected his offering. Now, Cain is angry with God because he rejected his offering. And Cain's got some choices to make. My question is, why didn't he ask God why his offering was rejected? Why didn't he turn away from his sin and his anger and toward God for help. The Lord reaches out to Cain, which is really an act of grace, right? So look at the text. Cain offers the Lord an offering out of his leftovers. He wasn't offered by faith. Um, I see, I, I, when, I, when I look into this text and, and research it, it seems to me that Cain didn't offer from the first fruit of his crop, right? He, he harvests, harvested his crop, took what he needed, and then there's some left over. And so that's kind of what he, it was like he tipped God, right? So there's a tendency for people, for Christians to do that too. We get our, our money, our resources, we use for everything we need, and then we got a little bit of money left over and we throw that in the plate. That's not what God call, how God calls us to worship him through our offering. God's called us to offer to him by faith. And, and Cain didn't do that. So, so Cain's angry with God. And if, you're, if we're not careful when we read this text, we can, we can miss the beauty of God's grace even in the midst of Cain's judgment. So Cain offers to God. God rejects Cain's offering because of the attitude of his heart. And then what happens next in the text? Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, The Lord reaches out to Cain. That's an act of grace and mercy. God doesn't need to do that. Cain's hard, heart is hard. He's mad at God. And God, because of who he is, has every right to leave Cain in his sin, in his anger. Instead, God reaches out to him. This is in and of itself an act of grace. Now, Cain offered the improper offering. He's mad at God for rejecting it. God reaches out to Cain for help and help him understand the danger of his anger. The Lord's grace never, ever ceases to amaze me. <clears throat> Even in the midst of his hard heart, God ministers to Cain. He doesn't want him to fall into that temptation to sin. God knows what resides inside of his heart, right? We just saw that passage in Samuel, Hosea, and Corinthians. God cares about what's in the heart, and God sees what's in the heart. So God sees what's going on in Cain's heart. And the Lord gives Cain a warning. If you continue in your pride and cultivate a bad attitude, then sin will destroy you. Matthews writes, 
What is more important here for Cain, however, is what action he will take now that his sin has been found out. So basically what God's done, he's interacted with Cain, and he's, he's opened up a door into Cain's heart, and he told Cain, I see what's in your heart, right? How in the world would Cain, in a, in a direct interaction with God, not know that? Well, we do that all the time, don't we? Don't we oftentimes deceive ourselves to think that we can hide things from God? Secret sin or, or anger or malice against another person. The, the um, illustration I often use, I, I don't know if I used this last week or not, is any of you all that work with kids, um, have you ever had a child, a very, very young child, want to hide from you so they cover their eyes? And they think because they can't see anything that you can't see them? That's what's going on when we try to hide our sin or what's going on in our heart from God. Because God can see us just the same you can see a two-year-old in the middle of a room with their hands over their eyes. And that's what God's done here. He's looked into Cain's heart and he's pulled out what's going on in there in this interaction. So Cain faces an important decision. How will I respond to my sin against God? Because God's called him out. He said, I see what's in there. I see what you're thinking about. I see what's going on. He said, you better be careful. We need to nip this in the bud. And so let's pause there just for a minute. And let's apply a few principles that we learn just from Cain and Abel's sacrifices to our own worship of God. First, give God your first fruits, not your leftovers. Give God your first fruits, not your leftovers. Because when we got, give God our first fruit. So we take, for instance, we, we take our income and on the front end we get that. The first thing we do is we give our tithe and offering to the church first. Then we pay our bills and use the money in other ways as we feel led by the Lord. As opposed to paying everything and then giving God a portion of what's left over. You see how when we give God first, that's a step of faith. Trusting in Him to meet our needs. Give God your first fruits, not your leftovers. Giving to God first before we use our resources elsewhere is an act of faith. It also removes a temptation for us to be stingy. The temptation for us to use our income and our resources in other ways. When we give it to the Lord first, then there's no more temptation to use it in other ways. Second, give God your very best. Give the best you have to Him and to no one and nothing else. Give Him your best. Third, give to God with the right attitude. God cares most about the attitude of our hearts, right? God sees into our hearts. He knows our deepest cares, our, our intentions. He knows what's going on in there. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, give with joy. We have received much from Jesus, right? We've received a gift of eternal value, of infinite value from the Lord. Now, we could never hope ever to pay that back. That's a gift of grace from Him. How do we respond to that grace? Are we giving back to the Lord with love and joy in response to this magnificent gift of salvation that we receive from Jesus? When we don't tithe our income and serve the Lord, we're not in danger of losing our salvation or being loved less by God. We're saved and loved by Him because He chose to do that through Jesus. That's a gift, not something we earn or buy. The danger is that this lifestyle is indicative of our faith in the Lord or lack thereof. God looks into the heart. He sees our attitudes, our intentions. He sees our faith. That's what he's, that is what he is concerned about most in your life. He gives Cain a warning. He says, you better address this um, attitude, this anger you have. And then what does he say next? 
because sin is crouching at the door. Have any of y'all ever had a ferret for a pet? Anybody in here? Jeannie, no? You want one? No? So you know how cats are playful and run around and jump on stuff? So ferrets are like a cat, only like 100 times more uh, crazier, not more. They're 100 times crazier than cats. So I had a ferret when I was in college, and she was kind of feral because we didn't hold her a lot. So she just kind of ran around the house. And she was an albino ferret with pink eyes. So she wasn't real great looking either and kind of scary. She was perfect for our house. And so what she liked to do was she loved to crouch underneath the couch or in shadows like behind the TV. And she was really smart. So she knew that eventually someone would walk by that couch. And you know what she did when you walked by? Woo! She crouched out and grabbed a hold of you and she would ball up on your ankle and just start biting your ankle. Now, she couldn't break the skin. She was too small for that. But it was scary, especially if you woke up at night and went down to get a drink of water and that thing jumped on your, le- on your ankle. It was very unpleasant. Oftentimes, she would wait, because we were in a three-story house, so she would wait by the front door and she would hide behind, like in this corner. And when guests came, they would come into the house through the door And then she would chase them up the stairs. That was her favorite thing to do. Biting their feet, jumping on their legs. She loved to wait in the shadows and loved to crouch and attack uh, people as they walked by. You can use that as a way to remember God's warning in our own life. When we fall under conviction because of our sin... We play our, we, when we fall under conviction because of our sin, we come to a very, very important fork in the road in our spiritual lives. You know what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit brings to mind something in your life. And you know that's wrong. You know God disapproves of it. And you come to this fork in the road. Okay, am I going to repent of this and turn toward Jesus, ask for forgiveness and move on? Or am I going to rebel against this conviction, continue to do what I want to do, and kind of live in that anger and that sin. All of us have to deal with that on a daily basis, don't we? James 4, 6 says, but He gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? God is opposed to the one who refuses to repent of sin. God literally is opposed to you. His his back is turned against you. You're fighting against Him. But the one that comes to God for forgiveness in humility, what does it say? Receives His grace. Will we proudly cling to our sin and experience a broken relationship with Jesus and the consequences that follow from our decision? Or will we turn to Him in repentance and receive the grace that God desires to provide for us? Next, the text describes the first murder and God's judgment and mercy upon Cain for his horrific act. Let's look at the first murder. It begins in verse 8. Cain told his brother... Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The translation from the original Hebrew makes this kind of hard to understand, especially the first part of verse 8. The intent of the first part of the verse is to say, Cain said to his brother, let's go out into the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain rose up against Abel and he killed him. That word killed is a Hebrew word that's used to indicate premeditated murder. So Cain thought about it ahead of time, made a plan, and executed his brother. Cain's murder of Abel is the fruit of the sin that he cultivated inside of his heart. He tilled the soil of his heart and planted the seeds of anger, jealousy, and malice and pride Then he watered that sin as he made plans 
as he conceived of, an, of a way to murder his brother. He harvested the fruit and surrendered himself to it by murdering Abel. Verse 9 continues, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? God's question for Cain after he murdered his brother Abel is strikingly similar to God's question of Adam. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and then God was walking through the garden, and what did God say to Adam? Where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was, of course. And God knows exactly what Cain's done, too. Cain tries to avoid God's question. I'm so glad we never do that, right? He asks a rhetorical question in response. You know, because he's so brilliant, right? We're so brilliant in our conversations with God. He answers back with some philosophical questions. Why should I know where my brother Abel is? Is it my responsibility to keep track of him? Do you ever have, have you ever answered that way to your parents when they wanted to know about your siblings? Where's your brother? I don't know. Why do I have to watch my brother? Anybody? I got that all the time, Brandon. Just me and Brandon. My mom, I had a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. We'd be doing something, and mom would be like, where's your brother? I'm like, I don't know. Why, why, who, why does it matter? I don't know. Why do I have to know where he is? And the answer is always the same. He's your little brother. What she's saying, it's your job to know where your little brother is. You're supposed to take care of him. That's exactly what God's doing here. It's interesting to note that, that um, Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is yes. And he is for several reasons. First, Cain is the firstborn of the family, and his God-ordained responsibility is to work with Adam to care for the family. And you remember, we've gone over this before, but um, property rights in the families were, would all go to the oldest brother who would run the family, and the youngest brothers would get less, but the older brother was in charge of taking care of the estate. He was, yes, he is Abel's keeper. That's his job. Second, just generally, family is supposed to look after family. In both Leviticus and Galatians, God commands people to love their neighbors as themselves. Third, all people are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and this places a burden on God's people to care for all people because God made them and they are valued by God. Now, I don't think that Cain planned to engage in a theological or philosophical debate with God. I think God approached him, and Cain begins what all sinners do, right? We try to hide or cover up what we've done. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. So I want to make sure it wasn't just me. Cain uttered a plain old lie to God. Basically saying, I don't, yeah, I don't know where he is. God says, where is your brother Abel? Yeah, I don't know where he's at. Next, God responds to Cain's lie, knowing perfectly well what happened to Abel. Verse 10, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. As Abel's murdered, bloodied body lay lifeless on the ground, Cain's sinful act cries out to God for justice. The curse of Adam and Eve's sin, think about this, the curse of Adam and Eve's sin infiltrated their family. And in just one generation, one sibling murdered another one. Like literally, Adam and Eve, one generation earlier, were in the garden in perfection not knowing what sin was, living in a perfect relationship with God. They eat the fruit. Sin is introduced into uh, humanity, into their genetic line, into the way they raise their kids. Within one generation, 
One of their sons murders the other one. One generation. That's the effect of sin. And that's what it did to the human race. The curse of Adam and Eve's sin was great indeed. Not only will Adam and Eve die, but now it becomes clear that the generations that follow them will actually slaughter one another. Murder is the ultimate act of disobedience and sin against another person and against God. To murder them and to prematurely end their life, a person created in God's image. Cain, however, would endure a heavy consequence for his act of murder. Look at verse 11. It says, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So like his father Adam, Cain was a farmer. Like his father Adam, Cain's sin influenced his relationship with God's creation. Cain is placed under a curse. He will no longer farm. When he farms, when he plants, the ground will no longer yield a fruit, uh, fruit or produce for him. Cain's curse creates two new difficult realities for him and his future family. First, he will no longer cultivate the land, which would allow him to settle in one place. Now he's going to have to wander the earth collecting what he can get to stay alive. Number two, and worse, he will leave his family and the presence of God. Cain would not have the support of his family. Cain would not live in the presence of God in a land provided for Adam's descendants. Verse 13 and 14 explain Cain's response to God. What I want to point out first is that God's judgment on Cain ultimately is an act of grace. Within it, God provides grace. Second, at nowhere in this conversation that Cain has with God do we see repentance. Just pay close attention to that as we read this. Cain just received his judgment from God. Why didn't verse 13 begin with, Cain said to the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. What can I do to atone for my sin? That's not what he said. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Look at that, those two verses and tell me, who is Cain most concerned about in those two verses? Himself, Cain. He's, he's so inward-focused. That's really what he cares about. He protests that God's judgment is too great for him. He explains that what God is doing to him is a death sentence. Cain does not repent of his sin. He shows no remorse. He's sad because of God's judgment, not because of his sin. Nowhere in this text does it say that he's sad that he murdered his brother. Instead, he's sad that he got caught murdering his brother. Instead of repentance, Cain expresses self-pity and resentment. What's he trying to do? He's trying to make God feel like the bad guy. He's trying to make God to be the unjust judge who doles out unnecessarily harsh judgment. Look again and and see how Cain explains the consequences of his sin. Look closely. God is the one who brings this upon Cain. Now, God is sovereign, and, and He is the one who executes judgment upon Cain, but His judgment's always right and true. This is the result of Cain's sin alone. And God's judgment is righteous. But, within this, even while Cain refuses to repent, look at verse 15. God's judgment still contains within it his mercy. Verse 15 says, So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain 
Vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What did Cain deserve for his sin of murdering his brother? Well, according to Genesis 9-6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So he deserved the death penalty for what he did. But God allows him to live. Even more than that, God gives him a special mark that would warn others not to murder him. So God even ensures that he'll continue to live. We don't know what the appointed sign of Cain is, in case you're wondering. Whatever it was, it preserved Cain's life. What is perhaps the most interesting part of this passage is the lack of compassion and repentance by Cain. And listen, church, listen. That's what sin does to us. Sin acts like a barrier separating us and our God. An attitude of sin prevents us from having compassion on those against whom we sin and leads us away from repentance. He never expresses sorrow. He never expresses sadness. He only seems to care about his own life. He is a man wrapped up in himself, his own circumstances, his own feelings, and he has succumbed to his own prideful heart. What we learn here, cultivating a bad attitude produces bad fruit. Cultivating a bad attitude produces bad fruit. But our God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we approach our God with an attitude of repentance, we receive forgiveness. Now, I talked a little bit about family lines. I want to like tie all this up here with the last few verses here, beginning in verse 17. This is one of the toldotes describing Cain's family. So, verse 17, we see God is still gracious to Cain, allowing him to have a family. It says, God had, uh, Cain, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, um, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, God is faithful to Cain. He provides him safety. And he produces a lineage of people. And they're known for a few things. For tent dwelling, for animal herding, instrument uh, playing, implement forging, and of course, killing people that wronged them. Did you catch that? That's what Cain's known for. And all the way down several generations... That's what he's known for as well. Killing people that wrong them. God is faithful to Adam and Eve. They give birth to Seth. What's Seth's lineage known for? Calling on the name of the Lord. Seth's lineage are the people who follow God and the ones to whom God gives the covenant. 
Have you all ever done that family lineage study online? Anybody ever done the thing where you go on and look, try to map out your family tree? Nobody? That's really surprising. I thought somebody in here, did you have, you didn't have one like from your family that someone wrote? You guys have one? Okay. So how far up do you know, can you go? A lot of generations. What was your family? I'm putting Miss Bim in the spot. I hope you don't mind. What is your? What would you say as you look at your family tree? What are your people known for? They were in service. Military service. Okay. All right. So revolution. Uh, military service. Anybody else have like looked? What do you? Oh yeah, Darlene's family has a tree. Darlene, do you want to share what are some things that your family is known for? Back to Francis Cook, yeah. Did everyone hear that? Carnies. I wasn't going to say anything, but Sophie raised her hand. Well, and also on your mom's side, you have uh, pastors. Yes. Generations of pastors on, um, on your mom's side. Generations of pastors' wives. Pastors' wives, yeah. Women that marry pastors. Yes. Anybody else have a family tree that you know well? I did one of those, and I was able to trace my family line. Some of it, you know, it's like your best guess because it wasn't handed down to me. It was, I had to go online and match things up. And my family line, which I could trace back to Germany, my people are from Germany. Um, I bet you could never guess what my family was known for in Germany. No, I'm sure they did drink that, yes. They were mercenaries. They weren't even soldiers like in a force, like they were hired. You know, back then it was like a country would hire mercenaries to fight their wars. And, and there was, a, in Germany, there, I got a hold of a, you know, a, a census where it would say who it was, their religion, uh, what they did for a living. And the guy that I could trace back through my dad's line, it just said mercenary. I mean, that was in German, but that word meant mercenary. And so my mercenary family... Um, in Germany, immigrated to California and um, didn't really find a home there, so they kept moving east, and they made their way to Iowa. And if you've ever been to Iowa, Iowa's full of German-named towns. Um, Luxembourg, you know, um, Guttenberg, those are all towns in Iowa, but they're German towns. You know, they just named them what they came from. And so they... they uh, traveled to Guttenberg and uh, stay, stayed there and, and became farmers. So then after a certain time, my family moved into farming and served, of course, in a, in a couple wars. But that's my family line. When we look at um, Cain, <clears throat> Cain and Abel, or, or specifically Cain and Seth, and their lines, you know, that led me to just to think about what will my line be known for after me? You know, my influence in the world for Jesus, am I living for him? Am I raising up my children and, and the family around me, my, my nieces and nephews? Are we raising them to love the Lord? Oh, that my family line would be known for a people who worship God. Can you think of any better way to describe the people that come from you? You know, Doug's people, and they list all your generations, people that worship God. Well, that'd be amazing. I think that's what we're kind of left with tonight with this kind of difficult text. It was not real happy. It describes the first murder and the judgment that came from that. Oh, that we would have repentant hearts. That we would be quick to turn away from sin and turn toward God. And oh, that we as a people would be described as a people who love and worship God.
I want to invite Brandon and Miss Bim to come up for our last song. And I want to encourage you to use this song as an opportunity to worship God, to respond to what we've learned in His Word tonight, to have soft hearts, uh, to turn and trust in Him. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing the song and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the night you've given to us, an opportunity to worship you. I pray, Lord, that we would not give sin an opportunity to take root in our hearts. Help us instead to cultivate a spirit of righteousness, of repentance, a spirit of trust and faith in you. I pray over not just us, but those that would come after us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and even the generations of believers that come after us here in this church, that we would be known as a people who love and worship God. I pray that you would go with us as we leave this place tonight. Help us to love and serve you well, to be a light in this community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. so much. I think next time we do that one, we're going to need some tambourine. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. God bless you. I look forward to seeing. Oh, there it is. It was just a little late. Perfect. All right. Who's going to play the tambourine when we do that song? Oh, okay. We got a volunteer right here. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great week and I look forward to seeing you again Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Unless you come to our men's and women's Bible studies. Those are tomorrow night at 6.30. God bless you. We'll see you soon.